Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. So if you turn to um, the book of 1 Corinthians, and um, actually just to say, 1 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, I'll say more about those in a moment, um, but those four chapters of, of 1 Corinthians are the, the biggest chunk of the scriptures we've got concerning our gatherings. We'll read that in just a moment. Take that off for now, would you, at the back there, because thank you, sorry, we're not quite there yet, but um, we're going to look at that passage in a moment, which comes first in these four chapters. Um, uh, and that passage of Scripture which deals with praying and prophesying and men uncovering their heads and women covering their heads is often regarded as one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. And I don't know whether you started to read it just now and started to remember how, um, how difficult it, it can seem. Um, and at the end of that passage, Paul says, um, now if anybody wants to argue about this or if anybody wants to be contentious about this, and it's like, Paul foresaw that this was going to be a, a passage that uh, led to a lot of argument or contention, perhaps. But, but before we get to that passage, I just want to say, I think the most helpful context for understanding what we're about to read, there's two things I want to suggest. One, one is the Bible's very first mention of the house of God. And the second is Jesus' first mention of the church. Uh, so if you put the, 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 uh, the next slide up, there we go, that's it. So, first of all, in Genesis 28, Jacob has a life-changing dream in which he sees a stairway between connecting earth and heaven, and he sees angels ascending and descending between earth and heaven, and he hears God's voice, which is loud and clear, and is promising him great inheritance and uh, great multiplication. And God's saying, I'll be with you. I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll provide for you. And when he wakes from that dream, he says um, what is up there on the, on the slide. He says, surely the Lord is in this place. What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of of heaven. I don't think we can understand what Paul writes without understanding that. This is an awesome place. This is the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven. And in that passage are some vital hallmarks which are now to be fulfilled in the church, which is God's house. And then in the New Testament, when Jesus first speaks about the church, the ecclesia, the first time Jesus uses this word, he also says to Peter, who says, you're the, you're the Christ, and he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. Then he says, and I'm going to give you the, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I don't think we can understand Paul's teaching without having that scripture in our mind. Elsewhere, of course, Jesus teaches us to pray that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. 
And when we get to the end of the New Testament, we find that the, the restored church, the bride of Christ, uh, is, 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 is revealed on earth from heaven. And all of this, by way of introduction, is simply to say, God intends harmony between heaven and earth. And the church on earth is directly connected with heaven. There's a connection. There's a ladder. There's a stairway. There are angels ascending and descending. The church is the gateway to heaven. The church is the threshold. The church is the interface between heaven and earth. And when we gather together around the Lord Jesus, God himself is present and his voice can be clearly heard and our prayers are empowered to overcome, to bind and to loose, to advance the kingdom and to bring heaven to earth. And there is constant angelic activity. We have to see something much bigger, folks. And in light of all that, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll read verses 2 to 16. They'll be on the board. On the board. It's not a board, is it? What is it? A screen. There you go. And, um, and I want to share ten things that I believe and we believe in this church that this passage is about and isn't about. So let's first read the, the text. This is in, um, from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And it says this, Now I praise you because you always remember me and keep to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. So, if, it is, uh, if a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, she should be covered. A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory. But woman is man's glory. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. And man was not created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman, for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, It is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Wow. (laughs) Well, that's straightforward. So let's share, um, and and I appreciate if you're a visitor, this may seem somewhere off somewhere else. And and in some ways it is, but praise God for that. Um, 
So the first thing to say is this. I, I believe, we believe, it's about apostolic doctrine. This whole section of the epistle, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, concerns aspects of order and practice when the church is gathered. And Paul will go on in these chapters to talk about the Lord's Supper and then the charismatic spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and then, and then how the body all fits together with many different parts, things that Sarah's been talking about. And then chapter 13, he'll talk about how love is the, is the attribute, is the, is, is the way all, th- all these things fit together. And then in chapter 14, talks about prophecy and the gift of tongues with interpretations and how they are to fit together. And then he ends with a little section um, there's a subtitle in my Bible. It says, Order in the Church Meetings. The subtitles are not Scripture, by the way. They're just little subtitles put in. Um, so this whole section deals with, with aspects of what happens when the church gathers. And large parts of this section of the Bible have, over, over years, historically, large parts of this section have been ignored or discounted or neglected or relegated, especially I'm thinking of all those things about the gifts of the Spirit, which in parts of the church are still ignored and neglected, and it's had devastating consequences on the body of Christ. So, whilst we appreciate this passage is um, difficult to interpret, and, and whilst we appreciate our practice in this church may not be commonplace, we do want to honour God's Word. And we want to uh, be faithful to these apostolic teachings. And and a couple of other things I should say about this. Um, We should note this, that first of all, Paul talks about, and this is on the the board behind me now, Paul talks about um, passing on traditions and how he's delivered those traditions or those customs. And in both places, those words used mean to pass on something that's been received from somebody else. When he goes on to talk about the Lord's Supper in the next little bit of the passage, he he says this, and just think about this. The Apostle Paul, who didn't walk with Jesus, talks about the Lord's Supper. He says, I'm I'm passing on to you what I received from the Lord. Paul received revelation from Jesus that he's passing on. In in the book of Galatians, he talks about this gospel he has. He says, I didn't receive it from any man. I received it directly from the Lord Jesus. So if that is the case, and Paul says he's passing something on here, I want to be attuned, because this this is going to matter. Second thing, um, right at the beginning of the book of Corinthians, he says, I'm writing to the God's church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 2, and to all the saints everywhere, all the believers everywhere. So, so, So this isn't just written to a church in Corinth, it's written to all the believers everywhere, and therefore it has a universal uh, relevance. And the third thing I want to say is this passage about these aspects of praying and prophesying and whatever else he's gonna, we're going to go on to consider in a moment, they come at the beginning of this yeah. section of things to do with the gathered church. Paul deals with this first. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, it is of importance. And as we shall see at the end, he, he gives no space for the church to pick and choose which bits they want to um, apply. So my, my, my and our approach to this passage is, hang on a second, we want to understand this, we want to embrace it, we want to apply it, as we do all of the scriptures, 
And why should we think that there'd be no consequences from disregarding this bit, as there are clearly with disregarding the other bits? So that's the first thing. The second thing to say is the passage as a whole is about order. And he begins in verse 3, and the relevant verses are obviously on the board behind me. He begins with a statement of what we call headship based on the Godhead and the created order. God is the head of Christ. That's in the Godhead. And Christ is the head of man, who is the head of woman. I'm just going to state that at the moment. But that starting point is vital. Paul is, is establishing an argument based on the Godhead and on creation. Not on anything cultural. Not on anything religious. Not on what Corinth was like back then. But on the Godhead. And on creation. And if something is established in the Godhead and in, and in creation then it's relevant at any time and in any place. And then also to say from verse 3 that it is about heads. And uh, if you put the next one up, please. It's about heads. And there's a word that's used throughout this passage. He talks about the head, and the word is uh, is kephale, and I think we talked about this when when Rich and I talked about leadership. And it simply means that which is prominent or first. And what is a little confusing about the passage is that he uses it to refer to the literal physical head, the top of the body, the most prominent bit of the body, and he also refers, uh, uses it to refer to a metaphorical or a spiritual head, as in uh, an authority or a leader or a ruler over. And, and just to say, wherever Paul uses this word in that metaphorical sense, Christ is the head of the church, he always means it in that, in that sense of, of authority over because there are other ideas about that. So this passage refers to both the physical head and the spiritual head. Okay, with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. Next thing to say, it is not about hierarchy. And this is really important to say. And it's clear from Paul's teachings and Peter's teachings, from other apostolic teachings, that this headship has nothing to do with value or worth or any kind of hierarchy. And, and some of the most unhelpful interpretations of this passage are based on the, the false idea that Paul is somehow describing a woman's subordination to man. And I think nothing could be further than the truth. He makes it clear men and women have equal standing before God. There's, there's, there's an equality of, of, our, of our redeemed nature of our, of our uh, ability to pray and prophesy in the church. Paul says, um, we, uh, Peter says, we're co-heirs. And as Paul makes clear in verses 11 and 12, which are the ones on the screen, there is an interdependency between man and woman. And in any case, if you think about this, he said God is the head of Christ, is the head of man, is the head of woman. If he's saying there's, a, there's some kind of a superiority or inferiority between the man and the woman, then by inference, he's saying the same exists between God and Christ, which we know it doesn't. The Father and the Son are in perfect equality, expressed with a headship and a submission. And Rich and I talked about that when we talked about 
leadership. It's to do with different roles, different responsibilities. And so just as in God there is perfect equality expressed with headship and and submission, so too there is with man and woman. And that's seen in the home. Richard is the the head of Sarah in the home. And in the church, elders are, are male. But neither Richard nor the elders, there's nothing about superiority in that. It's about our role and our function. So the next thing to say, and now we get into some of the the, the heart of this really, it's about power in prayer and prophecy. Paul makes this statement that when praying or prophesying, a man should uncover his head and a woman should cover hers. And that to do otherwise, for a man to cover his head or for a woman to uncover her head, would be to dishonor the head or her head or his head. And he emphasizes that point by comparing it to the shame of a woman having her head shaved. Now note here, and again, this, this, this is so important, this is an instruction for men and women. This is not a teaching about women or about men. It's a teaching about men and women and how they should present, how we should present or distinguish ourselves when praying and prophesying. So what's the significance of those two activities? Sarah's described many things that happen when we meet as a church. Paul's talking here about when we pray, when we prophesy. Well, they are words. They are conversations that connect heaven and earth. In prayer, we speak to God. In prophecy, God speaks to us. God and his people speaking to each other. And in each case, the person who prays or prophesies in the congregation is acting in a a priestly role, acting as an intermediary, acting as a spokesperson. In prayer, if I pray pray now on on behalf of us all, I'm acting as a spokesperson between us and the Lord. I'm not sure I understand. (laughs) Did that last week. (laughs) I programmed it to say that. When... um, When Sean came forward earlier and prophesied, she acted as a spokesperson on behalf of the Lord speaking to us. I was going to get somebody to turn that off before I started, but I have no idea how to do it or who to ask, to be honest. Now, functioning in prayer or in prophecy, they're not the only expressions of this royal priesthood, but they are two vocal activities that involve us in speaking out on behalf of the Lord or on behalf of his gathered church. And they are, the, they are primary weapons that carry great power in our spiritual warfare of binding and loosing, of pulling down strongholds, of advancing the kingdom and of building up the church. And Paul says, 
When a man prays or prophesies, he should uncover his head. When a woman prays or prophesies, she should cover her head. And then he goes on to give a reason for this. I want to say number six, it's about glory and honor. And he says this, and by the way, you wish he'd said a bit more. (laughs) But he does say this. The man should, this is verse seven, the man should uncover his head because, so here's the reason, because he is made in God's image and glory, whereas the woman, although of course she's also made in God's image, he says, is man's glory. I'm so glad Sarah quoted Tom Cruise earlier on. (laughs) You complete me. Because I think that's, that's what this is about. The woman, uh, it's, it's a reference to creation again. Yeah. The woman was made from the man yeah. and for the man. So as to complete what he lacked. It's not good that the man is alone. That's right. I will create a suitable helper for him. She completed him. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't subordinate to him, but she completed him. And in that sense, she's his glory. And without saying so explicitly, and again, you wish he'd been a little more explicit, Paul seems to be indicating that God's glory reflected in man should be uncovered. And the man's glory reflected in woman should be covered. So that only God's glory is on display. And this seems to parallel what he infers in the verses above. So if you just maybe put the slide back up to verses four and five, where he seems to be saying, and again, doesn't say so explicitly, but, but the way we present our physical heads represents the way we honor our spiritual heads. A man should keep his head, hence Christ, uncovered. A woman should keep her head, hence man, covered up. And some of the translations um, make that clear in the way they, the way they put a little apostrophe around the, the spiritual head. So, for example, N.T. Wright says, the Messiah is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of every wife. And every man who prays or prophesies while wearing something on his head brings shame on his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered brings shame on her head. Let me go on to say number seven. It's about authority. And when a woman covers her head, it says that it is a sign or a symbol of authority. And this also is vital. A woman's covered head is a sign of her authority and her empowerment. And the word is that word exousia, which means power or authority or influence. It's not a sign of any kind of subordination or inferiority it's an authority of course that comes from a proper submission to God's order but so is a man's uncovered head by uncovering or covering our heads we're saying we're submitted to we men and women are submitted to God's order in his church God's beautiful order that is that word hupotasso which means to be under God's arrangement So we would say when a woman takes the lead 
in praying and prophesying, which we encourage all the time. She does so as part of a new covenant priesthood. And she does so with a sign or a symbol of her identity and her authority in Christ. And neither would I pray or prophesy with with a hat on, with a cap on. I believe to do so would be equally out of order. I would remove my hat, my head covering, to pray or prophesy. Number eight. Are you ready for this one? It's about angels. And Paul reveals a further reason for the practice. And I think he reaches the central point of all of this. It's because of the angels. The reason for this visible demonstration in the church of order, headship, and authority, the reason is the invisible angelic realm. It concerns angels. And Paul gives no further details. (laughs) But elsewhere in the same epistle, which is always the best place to start in interpreting anything, elsewhere in the same epistle, in chapter 4, verse 9, he talks about how angels join humans to observe apostolic ministry. In chapter 6, verse 3, he talks about how believers will judge the fallen angels. I'll come on to that in a moment. In chapter 10, verse 10, he talks about, he makes reference to the, to the destroying angel of the Old Testament. In chapter 13 and verse 1, which we'll get to in a moment if we're reading this, he talks about the languages of men and angels. And in each case, Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that there is another order of created beings, an angelic realm that overlaps, interfaces with the affairs of men. Now, we also know that this angelic realm was was devastated by Lucifer's um, rebellion against God's order and God's authority. Lucifer, we read in in, in, um, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, Lucifer was a created angelic being who decided he wanted to be like God and to usurp himself above God and as a result was cast out of heaven with one third of the angelic realm. Jude 1 verse 6 also refers to this. When When we know that, when we also know that Adam's fall, Adam's fall, challenged the original created order. God, Christ, man, woman, beast. And in the garden, one of the beasts, the serpent, Lucifer in disguise, um, tempted the woman to tempt the man, to persuade the man to rebel against God and to take the fruit he'd commanded them not to eat. That created order was completely upturned in the fall. And when we think about those things, perhaps we begin to grasp what Paul is saying here. Angels take great interest in human affairs. They bear witness to what's happening in the church. They actually assist us in what's happening in the church. 
the actions of the gathered church are visible to the angelic realm. And I think having witnessed the, the catastrophic impact of Lucifer's fall and Adam's fall, they long to see the church demonstrating through this simple practice that we willingly submit to God's ordained order and arrangement for Christ's bride. It's one way we can make his wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's a demonstration to the heavenly realms that our house is in order. There's no place for demonic intrusion. There's there's, there's, there's liberty for angels to be about their activity. To the watching angels, aware that one of their own rebelled against God's order, it demonstrates that the order now re-established in Christ is embraced and outworked by his bride. God has purpose that, that his church, the house of God, will be the threshold, the gateway to heaven. Where, where, where he's present, where his voice is heard clearly in prophecy, yes. where our prayers carry great power and where his angels are active amongst us, ministering to advance his purposes. Yes. There's clearly, and I'm so glad about this, there's clearly an element of mystery in all this, yes. <laughs> which should not concern us. But what Paul's statement clearly does tell us, without doubt, is that this passage and these things cannot be understood in merely human terms. Or in natural ways. They touch upon dimensions of our gatherings that we know relatively little about. As I was thinking about teaching this, and by the way, I just want to say, I've probably spent more time preparing to teach this than anything this year, if I put that time together. Because we're handling something of such magnitude that can be so easily pushed to one side. We could be mocked for for our position on this. It might seem strange, but I just felt the Lord say to me, bigger things are at stake. Much bigger things are at stake. Number nine, it's not about hair. She's just as well for some of us. Sorry, some of you. I've got, I'm doing fine. I've got my hair. It's all the same color that it used to be. So Paul concludes his argument by pointing out, and this is where, again, it gets a little bit confusing, that this is where it gets confusing. That even nature shows us the significance of a woman covering her head. Her hair, he says, is given as, is given as a natural covering. And it, it's a covering that points, it's a natural thing that points towards something spiritual. But it's not a substitute for the spiritual thing. If her hair was the covering that he'd been talking about all along. The whole passage is just pointless. And anyway, how could a man remove his, remove his covering if his hair is the covering? Andrew would have to take his hair off every time he prophesied. Yeah. Which would be entertaining, of course. 
And anyway, um, anyway, the word he uses for covering here in, chapter, in verse 15 is a different word to the words he's used everywhere else. And um, by the way, I think his comment that long hair is a disgrace to a man in verse 14 there should be read alongside his earlier comment that we, we, we did pass over at the time that, that a shaved head is a disgrace to a woman. And I don't think Paul's focus is so, is, is so much on the specific length of hair there, but rather on just simply an abiding principle that a man shouldn't look like a woman and a woman shouldn't look like a man. He's arguing for a basic distinction in appearance between the genders that points to this distinction in appearance when we pray and prophesy. And then my last point is this. It's not about culture. I kind of covered this already, but Paul is clearly not dealing with a cultural matter because he says there's no other practice, which means a, a, a custom, a habit, or a practice. Um, or, uh, he says there's no other... We, we have no other practice. I think he means in all the churches I'm involved in, his, in his apostolic sphere, we have no other practice, and nor do any of the churches of God... And by the way, by contrast, in the same epistle, there are clearly places where Paul says, I don't have a word from God on this, but I will give you my opinion. Yeah. He's talking about marriage and divorce and what should happen to, to um, unmarrieds, etc. Um, so Paul is very happy to say, this is, this is my judgment, this is my opinion. But here he's very much laying down doctrine. Yes. There's no other practice. He's not, he, he, he is being prescriptive here. And in any case, this, this practice he's laying down was actually at odds with what was um, cultural or religious in the day where there was a whole mixture of how men and women did or didn't cover their heads. And um, I want to pretty much end with a, with a really enlightening reference that we get in Peter, Second Peter, chapter 3. So Peter, another apostle. And I just find this incredibly comforting, really. Second Peter 3, verse, verse 16. He's talking about Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians. And he says he speaks about these things in all his letters, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. I don't know whether he'd, whether he'd, he'd had access to 1 Corinthians by this time. There are some things that are hard to understand, um, the untaught and the unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. Fascinating that Peter already understands that Paul is writing scripture. And encouraging, perhaps, that he says there are some things that are hard to understand. And so, um, at the end of this, although there's, there's plenty in there that we do understand, we we do also say Paul is here sharing an apostolic revelation. He's sharing mysteries that he's been entrusted with. And we might, by the way, conclude that if the apostle who went into the third heaven and saw things he is not permitted to tell, which he describes a little bit in 2 Corinthians, if he tells us this is because of the angels, I'm okay with that. God has revealed some things, but he's kept others secret. 
and that's for his glory. And we don't need to fully understand something in order for it to be true or authoritative or applicable or powerful. And we believe, the eldership and myself in this church, we believe that like the other means of grace, the sacraments, these are simple outward physical actions and signs that have powerful inward spiritual and eternal realities. At the end of this whole section, chapter 14, just back there, the last, very last thing I'm going to say, at the end of chapter 14, when he gets to the end of this section about what should happen in the gathered church, whether it's breaking bread or moving in gifts of the Spirit or prayer or prophecy or how tongues and interpretation should work, he says in verse 40, but everything must be done decently and in order. It's a nice end note on the whole section. And the word means an orderly arrangement. It's a military term. It has the sense of of a detailed ordering rather than just a general sort of disposition. And we believe this passage contains details that matter. And so in light of that, it is our practice that when we gather as a church in our various settings and our various expressions, if a man prays or prophesies on behalf of the gathering, he should uncover his head and a woman should cover hers and we see this as a simple but significant matter in the house of God which is the gateway to heaven amen amen Amen. I will end there because of time Um, if I think what would be great is that sometime in the new year just to receive any questions anybody's got we'll take some time to answer some specific questions but I hope that has been helpful to us all this morning Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.